Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Brad, and I'm one of the pastors here. Antioch kids, you may be dismissed to go to your classes at this time. Uh, Teachers and leaders, we say to you, you are sent. Well, today is a special day in the life of our church. Well, I, I hope it's special for you. It's definitely special for me. Today, we come to the conclusion not only of this summer's series in Genesis that we have titled Worst Thing, Best Thing, but we come to a conclusion of our entire journey over the course of four years through the book of Genesis. It's been good. It's been hard. Hard for me to prep to even learn how to preach such an important and difficult and beautiful book of the Bible. I figured it up this week. If you've listened to all the sermons of Genesis, that means you've spent 40 hours of your life listening to the preaching of Genesis. And if we total all up my time in preparing and also preaching those sermons, I've spent a thousand hours of my life in the book of Genesis. What a privilege it has been. And so four different series that we broke the book into, first of all, chapters 1 through 11, creating culture, chapters 12 through 25, blessed to be a blessing, chapters 26 to 36, learning to limp, and chapters 37 to 50 this summer, worst thing, best thing. This week we ask a number of you to maybe give us a short video of what's been most impactful to you in the book of Genesis over the course of these years. And we've compiled those together for a short clip here, if it works. In Genesis To me, the 
quintessential experience of Jake Nelson. He is actually spectrumized in one of my favorite quotes, my favorite things, you know. Life breaks us all, and we fill those cracks with something stronger. Jacob's life was broken, and then he filled it with God. What impacted me in my new joint was seeing, uh, especially towards the end, with Jacob wrestling with God, the lengths that God was willing to go to in order to discipline and chastise Jacob to the point where he would fear the Lord, not man, and fully rely on God. Amen. Well, I would encourage you, if you haven't already, to reflect on what has been impactful to you over the course of this four-year journey. God's Word is powerful. It's what shapes us, molds us, and grows us. So for the last time today, I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 50. You can find that on page 43 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs. Uh, The title of today's sermon is The Place of God. And we're going to consider three points of application that I think really picture the entire story of Genesis. Relationship can be restored when, first, we stay out of God's place, second, we look out with God's eyes, and third, we pour out from God's love. Young disciples, if you haven't already gotten your sermon guides, they're right over here. If you're an older disciple and like the sermon guides, you can get one too, okay? And young disciples, this is the main part of your questions are related to these points, but those will come up later in the sermon so you don't have to scribble them all down right now. Well, church, since today's passage is so long, rather than standing to read it all at once, I'm going to be reading it verse by verse as we go along. But let us now posture our hearts in such a way that we can still say in regard to God's word, the Lord has spoken to us and respond together. Thanks be to God. Now, how can you possibly sum up the book of Genesis? My answer, I don't know. But here's my unprofessional shot at it. Genesis allows us to see the beginning of God's relationship with his creation. And at the heart of that relationship, and all relationships, is trust. And instead of reviewing this entire book for you, you're welcome, let me just read this summary of the beginning of Genesis that I think really helps frame the entire sermon. We are relational beings because we are created in the image of a relational God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Adam and Eve were connected with God and each other in profound and mutually satisfying ways. Their life-giving relationships depended on a deep trust. There it is. Confidence in the truth, goodness, and beauty of God and each other made loving submission a natural and fulfilling reality. Then God's love for them came into question. The serpent said God is not good and thus not trustworthy. As a result, Adam and Eve lost faith in their Creator. They decided to do life on their own, ignoring the fact that their capacity for pure, loving relationships depended on their trust of God. The consequences of their mistrust 
were devastating. They discovered their nakedness and clothed themselves with leaves. They hid from their creator who longed to commune with them in the cool of the evening. They blamed each other for their transgression. Their mistrust birthed shame, fear, and guilt. Sadly, they cast the die for us as well. Mistrust now infects our relational capacity. We are set against ourselves, others, and God. We live divided, reactive lives. We are not just victims of our first parents, but our perpetrators as well. Like them, we insist on doing life our own way. Like them, we ignore the source of love and life. Like them, we mistrust God. So let me explain this in a much simpler way. This is actually part of what I've been using lately to share the gospel with my children and other children and even adults. I will call it the place of God. It goes like this. There is only one God and he is king. He sits on the throne. That's his place. He created everything, including the first man and woman, to have a special relationship with him. And in that relationship, they were both humble and confident. They were not God, and they were happy not to be God. In other words, they were relaxed. But then, the man and woman stopped trusting God. They disobeyed his command. They rejected God as their king. That means they said nothing less than this. We wear the crown now. We sit on your throne. We take your place. That's what sin is. The relationships were broken. So they were no longer humble, no longer confident, no longer relaxed. Now, you might be asking, why are you using this word relaxed in regard to the Bible, the gospel, sin, life? It's like, well, if you think about it, being relaxed is not exactly the state of Adam and Eve after they sin against God, right? Fear, guilt, and shame have nothing to do with being relaxed, at peace, comfortable in your own skin, among others, and before God. That's why I use that word and will continue to do so. And this is the story of Genesis 1 through 3. Then that same distrust goes on to infect every relationship on the planet. That's what we've seen in this book over and over and over in the past four years. Through the lives of people that we want to be heroes and save the world. But it's the same thing over and over. But here we are today at Genesis 50. And here we read, beginning in verse 1, Then Joseph fell on his father's face, that is Jacob, who had just passed away, and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him for seventy days. Thus his sons did for him as he commanded. This moves on after a long narrative of them going back into the promised land and burying Jacob where he requested them to bury him. Thus his sons did for him as he commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah, 
the east of Mamre, where Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Now, what is the significance of this and what we've talked about thus far this morning? There are many things, but I want to focus on one primary thing. Here at the end of Genesis, notice, trust is restored. The old patriarch, he dies, but he dies with vibrant relationships again. With Joseph, with Joseph's brothers, even with Egyptians who weep over him as if Pharaoh himself has died. And, not least, his relationship with God. He's so humble that he loves God's plans instead of his own. And he's so confident at the same time that he wants to be buried in a land that doesn't even fully belong to him yet. Thus, Jacob dies victoriously. In other words, he dies relaxed. But this is true not only for Jacob, but also for Joseph. So skip ahead with me and read verse 22. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you. And bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So yes, it's death, the same death that flows from Genesis 3 when sin came into the world, But it is a victorious death just like Jacob. Twice Joseph says, God will visit you and bring you to the land that he promised. What is that? That's trust. That's a relationship of trust. Joseph is humble. He's confident. He's relaxed all the way to the end. Can you imagine dying like that? In a world where that is the greatest fear of every human on the planet. The end. And yet to come to it at a soul space. Relaxed. And here is how Genesis concludes. And it's just how the whole Old Testament concludes. Giving God his place. And expectantly waiting on his promise. That's how it ends. My question is. How did that happen? How do we go from Genesis 3 to Genesis 50? How did that happen? And how can it happen to us? I want that, don't you? Well, here's our first consideration from the text this morning. Relationship can be restored when we stay out of God's place. So let's back up in the passage to verse 15. Following the burial of Jacob and before the burial of Joseph, we read this. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. And so they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, 
Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. So here's a picture of relationships that have not yet been fully restored. Like sure, there had been like the verbal exchange of forgiveness. You remember that? And there had been the emotional display of reconciliation. But you know what it it takes for a broken relationship to be restored? Trust. This is what we say we want to cultivate most in family groups. Vulnerability, transparency, and trust. Why trust? Because that's at the heart of relationships. And relationships are at the heart of our church. Okay? Trust has to be there in order for a relationship to be restored. And so trust isn't magically rebuilt the instant that people say, I'm sorry. Right? You don't move on that easy. And so because the brothers are still carrying some fear, guilt, and shame of what they had done to their brother Joseph, like look what they resort to here. It's their old ways of scheming, lies, deception. What are they basically saying to Joseph? Parents, this is going to be humorous to you, maybe. Here's what they're saying. Joseph, dad says you've got to be nice to us. That's what they're saying. Now, all the scholars that I read agree that this most likely was a lie, that Jacob never said any such thing. But not only do they lie to protect themselves, they seek to make up for their sins by bowing down and offering to be slaves. You know what that is? That's making what we call, or the Bible calls, atonement. Trying to atone, make up for sin on your own. Now, what this means is they don't trust Joseph's heart. Right? He said, this is okay, we're good. I'm going to take care of you. But they still don't trust his heart. And after all the beauty of the past few chapters, this is very ugly and very sad. It's so sad, in fact, that Joseph weeps. Now, why exactly does Joseph weep? Think of it like this. Christians in the room, let me speak to you for a moment here. How do you think it affects God when after he has given you the absolute assurance of his forgiveness, you still carry the fear, guilt, and shame of what you've done and you resort to your old ways of scheming, of atoning, of trying to make up for your sin? Simply put, when you still don't quite trust God. How do you think that makes him feel? What does that do to him? Now, well, the natural answer, especially when it's coming from a preacher, is that it makes him angry, right? Righteous indignation, fire snarling from his nose that you would do such a thing. But listen, man, that misses his heart. In Ephesians chapter 4, in the context of being told to put away our old ways of scheming, we read this, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. See, there's there's trust here. You've been sealed. There shouldn't be any doubt, any wavering. Don't grieve him. 
and go back into scheming and atoning. You see, the Greek word for grieve here is lupeo. And that doesn't mean anger, but a profound sense of sorrow. It's the same word used of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he weeps and is heartbroken. And that means when we are like what we see in these brothers here, God is like what we see in Joseph. He's heartbroken that we would go back there again. Now, you might say rightfully, isn't that a little dramatic to say that God is heartbroken when we distrust him, like weeps? Wouldn't that really make for hard relationships for God to be grieved all the time with us? Because I don't know about you, but I go right back into that scheming space a whole lot and stop trusting him. So that means he would be grieved a lot. Multiply that by everybody who knows him in the world, okay? That's a lot of grief for God. And I'm saying to you, it's not too dramatic to say that, yes, he takes on that grief in order to be in relationship with us because that's how amazing he is. And that's how much he loves. Put him on display. And we see him displayed to us in a very human way through Joseph here. Look at verse 19. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God. Now, Joseph speaks what will go on to be the most common command of Jesus when he comes. Do not fear. In other words, relax. You can trust me. You can come. Now, how can Joseph do this? Man, do you you know how hard it is to be kind in a position of absolute authority? So think of this. In World War II, Germany was just trying to take over the world committing terrible atrocities. They, they push and literally get really close to overtaking all of Russia. And the things that Russia suffered in those battles are horrific if you go back into the history of it. Now, Russia beats them back at the Battle of Stalingrad and begins to come back at them across Russia and eventually into Germany. As they do that, in this position of victory and authority... What do you think it was like for them as soldiers after all that they and their people had experienced to now have absolute authority over German soldiers and their families and their communities? Do you think they were benevolent and kind and just? Probably not in every scenario, I will say that, okay? Terrible things replaced in kind. It's so hard to be kind in a position of absolute authority. Joseph, though, he's able to keep from this because he says, I'm not in the place of God. Now, in other words, he's saying, I'm not the king. I don't sit on the throne. I don't wear the crown. Y'all, he's walking in the freedom of letting God be God. And we're told this often in Scripture, such as Romans chapter 12. Beloved Never avenge yourselves. Never put yourselves in the place of God, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Here's why. You put yourself in a position of absolute authority to carry out vengeance on those who have hurt you or others. You're always going to do one of two things. You're going to be too harsh or too light. Because you don't know what they deserve. You might think you do, but you don't. God knows. 
God is also perfectly just and perfectly merciful. How will he respond to them? You don't know. Leave it up to him. Listen, when you hold a grudge against another person, or you want less than good for that person, or you refuse to tell them their sin, or you intentionally keep them at an icy distance, or you continually criticize them with your thoughts or your words, that feels heavy, doesn't it? On you, it feels heavy. Why? Because you're feeling the weight of God's crown on your head. You are in his place where you don't belong. And so God says to you in those moments, I love you, but get out of my chair, (laughs) you know? And the reason why he says that is you can trust him. You can relax. Vengeance is his. He will repay. You can trust him. And don't you want that freedom today? I do. Listen, church, relationship can be restored when we stay out of God's place. That's the first encouragement that we have here at the end of Genesis. Here's the second. Relationship can be restored when we look out with God's eyes. Joseph continues speaking to his brothers in verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now the movement of Joseph's thought goes like this. As for me, I am not in the place of God. But as for you, you did take the place of God. You climbed up on his throne. You poured out wrath on me by selling me into slavery. Joseph acknowledges the evil here. You see that? Like the Bible never tells us to ignore that we or others have been harmed in a relationship. Instead, it says this, Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Why? So you can get even? No, so that you can gain your brother. The reason why that it's not loving to say, ah, no big deal, ah, no problem when you did that to me or to them, eh, is because it leaves the perpetrator in a host of broken relationships with themselves. They may be deceived that they didn't hurt anyone. Broken relationships with you and broken relationship with God. God says, don't leave them there. Love them. Don't leave them there. But here's what enables Joseph to do this from love instead of malice. You meant evil against me. Rewritten script. But God meant it for good. He trusts how God uses evil for good. Now, some of you might know a guy named Rajon Rondo. Right? Plays for the Lakers. Won a couple NBA championships with Celtics. NBA All-Star. Well, if you didn't know, he's actually from Louisville originally. And he played at Eastern High School. And when I was a junior, he was a junior. And I played against him. And I was assigned to guard him. And at that point, in my basketball career, I was ranked as one of the top defenders in the state of Kentucky. And so my team would always put me on the other team's best player to shut them down. And that's what I did. And so I was assigned to Rajon. Let me tell you how it went. <laughs> what, I, what if I shut him down? You got no confidence in me? Come on. 
If I got too close, he went around me and scored. If I got too far back, he pulled up and shot it and scored. If I fouled him, he hit his free throws. And if I played him perfectly, he would pass it to an open teammate who scored. That night, Rajon dropped 55 points on me and fouled me out of the game early in the fourth quarter. Mad respect for Rajon. In other words, he used me like a puppet. Okay? And that's exactly what God does with those who take his place. They can climb onto his throne. They can do everything in their power to take over his plan. And he will ultimately use them like a puppet. But what Joseph says here goes even further than that, y'all. It's not like Joseph is constantly reacting to evil like some overworked superhero. You know, like the Avengers. Oh, crud, something's happened. Oh, let's divide and conquer because there's too much going on in the world. That's not God. Joseph is saying God had meaning already in place for the evil that you bros did to me. He already knew it was coming. In fact, from eternity past, he had good purposes for it. And although it hurts our brains, God does not hide this from us, as in Isaiah 45. He says, I form light. We say, yeah. He says, I create darkness. We say, what? He says, I make well-being. We say, yes. Pour it out on me, Lord. Prosper. And I create calamity. What? I'm the Lord who does all these things. Or in the story of Job. You know, Job is the man who has it all, gets it all taken away because God allows for it to happen and Satan carries it out. He says, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Now, does this mean that God himself is evil? You know what? That's a good question to wrestle with. And to wrestle with that question is not to to set your answer, yes, he is evil because you're mad at him, and you get over in the corner and just sit there with that answer. That's not wrestling with that question. Wrestling with is really getting in there and digging in and searching the scriptures and asking other people and going there with it continually. Many people do wrestle with this question, and not at a philosophical level, but a very personal level. It's this question, why did God let this happen to me? Or why did God let this happen to the person or the people I love? Or why did God let this happen to people who seem very innocent to me, who live on another side of the world and did nothing wrong to get the lot that they did in poverty or disaster or whatever? Here is perhaps where some of you feel broken trust with God today. That's welcome here, okay? Don't stay there, but to acknowledge it is welcome. But also, here, this is welcome too. Here is the redemption that Joseph's story brings us. Here is about the whole reason that we named this series Worst Thing, Best Thing. Because, as we see in Joseph, when Things are going the most wrong. That's often when God is doing the most good. Now, of course, that's not possible to see if you are looking around down in the valley. 
right? You're down in the valley. You're hurting. You're asking that question. You see all the evil. You can't see the perspective of what is ahead of you on the path or around you in those mountains. But if you could just get up on the mountaintop where God is, who sees it all, you can see it all. See while your childhood was scarred with abuse or your body was given a chronic illness or those doors in your life just keep closing or your life is being struck with blow after blow after blow. The problem with this analogy is, though, like you can't be in God's place on the mountaintop yet. We've already established that. So that means what? It means that God has put you in a position where you have to trust him. And that's at the heart of your relationship with him. That's Joseph's message to you today, my friends. Relax. You can trust him. One day it will make sense. Relationship can be restored when we look out with God's eyes. That's our second encouragement today. Here's our third and the crowning one of them all. Relationship can be restored when we pour out from God's love. We see this in verse 21. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So there it is again. Do not fear. What was their fear? That Joseph would hate them and get payback. So Joseph's message is this. Relax, guys. I'm not going to do that. Instead of giving you what you deserve, I'm going to give you what you don't deserve. And this is not, listen, this is not just like some, like here, okay, I'll write you this check sort of philanthropy, now leave me alone. The emphasis in the Hebrew structure here is on the pronoun I. I will provide for you. That very well may mean that Joseph was saying, this will not come from the storehouses of Egypt. This will come from my own personal storehouses. And Joseph is fully committed to personally caring for the entire family, down to the littlest one. And so this goes way beyond simply forgiveness. This goes way beyond simply saying, I love you guys. This is practical, tangible, actionable love. Why would he do this? Because this is the nature of divine love. This is what it looks like for grace to be at work in your heart. Remember the teaching of the Lord Jesus. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Not forgive. It's not enough. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. But love your enemies and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. In other words, you will be like Him for He is kind to the ungrateful. And the evil. A friend of mine labored many years in the work of church revitalization. And multiple times he had church members treat him terribly, demonically, trying to get rid of him. 
And he said to me, man, you know what I did in response to all that? I decided that I would win them. And he went out of his way to pursue relationship with them and to visit them and to care for them. Even as they continued to mistreat him, even at the cost of his own humiliation. Now that sounds really awesome, doesn't it? It kind of motivates you to like, oh, I'm going to do that next time somebody, you know, does something terrible in my life until you have someone who does something terrible in your life and they're being really malicious toward you. It's crazy hard. Who in the world is possibly able to do this? God is. That's the answer. Is not God practically, tangibly, actionably kind to the ungrateful and the evil? Like I saw a video on social media yesterday, and this is the value of social media, honestly, are these videos that crack you up and these memes that, you know, make your day a little bit lighthearted. But I saw this video and there was this woman at a hot dog factory, I suppose, standing at an assembly line and just tossing hundreds of hot dogs into a large group of very happy dogs. It was awesome. She was getting into it. She was everywhere, man. I loved it. And a person had written down below it, God's common grace. Now, don't take the analogy too far. I'm not calling people dogs. Not saying God's grace is hot dogs unless you just really love hot dogs. And that's common grace to you. If you're a Gentile, that is, you can enjoy those common grace hot dogs. But I think this is a picture imperfectly of God's common grace. Except if those dogs were ungrateful and evil. Because that's what our world is apart from God. Think about... Think about God's common grace to ungrateful and evil people. Every breath that you breathe, every drop of rain, every morsel of food that satisfies your stomach and your taste buds, every ray of sunlight that keeps our planet warmed perfectly enough to not burn up too close to the sun or freeze too far away from it, every shred of clothing that keeps us from our nakedness and from the weather, every gift of a child, every note of music, every trill of laughter, every friendship given to those who are either not thanking Him for them or thanking another God for them or cursing Him for it. But he goes farther than common grace, doesn't he? Way farther. He gives special grace. The special grace that all of us need most. That is, he gives himself. He says, I will provide for you. Out of my own personal storehouses, I will will provide for you. That's what Christ is on the cross. It's God pursuing relationship with us, visiting us, caring for us, even as we continue to mistreat him, even at the cost of his own humiliation. And so that's the source from which Christians draw when we love those who are malicious toward us and toward others who are innocent. Relationship can be restored when we pour out 
from God's love. So, for the last time in maybe a while, let me pour out that love into you from the book of Genesis. When Jesus came, even though he was God, he stayed out of God's place. Right? Even though he was in God in the flesh, did not consider equality a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He came saying to all, do not fear. I don't come in judgment. I come to save. Even though he suffered and died, he looked out with God's eyes. He came trusting his father's view from the mountaintop. Now I know, y'all, from eternity past, he was in on the plan in the unity of the Trinity that he would be slaughtered for the sake of saving people. But when he came in the limitations of humanity, he had to become growing in his awareness of what exactly that would mean and that it would lead to a Roman cross, a very particular, terrible way of dying. And as he saw that and was tempted to bail on it, he continued to trust God's view from the mountaintop. This is for good. Also, even though he was treated terribly, demonically, he poured out. From God's love. He came offering himself as the source of the practical, tangible, actionable love of God. You talk with people throughout your lives who struggle with the problem of evil in a very personal, very deep way. And they say to you, why should I trust God? Look at what he's done in my life. Look at what he's doing across the world. Look at what he's not doing to allow this stuff to just continue to happen and get worse and worse. Where is your God? You say, I hear you. And I can't explain all that. But listen, if you want to know the heart of my God, the most practical, tangible, actionable way his love is expressed, is that he would give up him very self. To save people and to restore all things. See, all the mistrust toward God from all over the world and all ages was put upon Jesus. And that means, for a moment, his capacity for relationship with anyone was broken. Everyone was against him. He was completely alone. Why? So that God could win back your trust. That's why. When things were going the most wrong, God was doing the most good. So what does that look like? Do you just like believe that Jesus rose from the dead and like bloop, like all the relationship in your life that's been broken is restored? No. Every demon that exists believes that Jesus rose from the dead, but they don't trust him a lick which is what they say, how they say it where I come from. All right? Here's what it looks like for God to win back your trust and for relationship to be restored with him. It looks like this. You get out of his place. You get off his throne. You take off his crown. And instead, you put that crown back on his head. You say, Jesus, I trust you with my whole life. Let this place be your place. That's how trust and relationship is restored with God. 
And how will that restored relationship then affect you, change you, practically, tangibly, actionably? Well, first, you'll be humble. You'll learn to love God's plans instead of your own, no matter how hard or confusing they are. And second, you'll be confident at the same time, humble and confident. You'll bury your heart in a land that doesn't even fully belong to you yet. I want to be with him, and I will be, even in the face of death. Humble and confident. Put them together, what does that mean? You'll be relaxed. Now, Dallas Willard, who was an amazing philosopher in the realm of spiritual formation in particular, One time was asked, if you could describe Jesus in one word, what would it be? Now, it'd be fun if we would just, you know, say, what do you think he said? And and take different answers here in the room. But for the sake of time, let me just give you his answer. You know what he said? Relaxed. If you encountered Jesus and you experienced him, how would you articulate him in a single word? Relaxed. If you watch the Chosen series, you kind of experience that, don't you? You're like, oh, wait a minute. He's not like this awkward person just like going around and can't relate to anybody because he's always about the business of God. But he's laughing. He's playing with children. He's making jokes. He's dancing at weddings. He's making really good wine. Oh, my goodness, man. Like, he's so relaxed. Why? Because he trusts his father. No matter what comes his way. Like, that can be yours. When he comes into your life, more and more you know him, become like him, man, the tension can go down. Because it's all going to be okay. God's got this. Look at the cross. Look at the empty tomb. God's got this. And then at the end of your days, just like the end of the New Testament, which ironically ends just like the Old Testament, you'll be giving God his place. And expectantly waiting on his promise. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it. He said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took a cup of wine. And after blessing it, he gave it to his disciples. He said, this marks the new covenant and the shedding of my blood. And as often as you eat this bread, you drink from this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he returns. Until he returns. And so today we are announcing that Jesus Christ is the promise that we're waiting for. Nothing less. To see him face to face. And to be with him forever. That is a promise that you can take to the bank. That it will be fulfilled in his time. So wait for it. The invitation today for baptized believers, whether or not you're a member of this church, is to come forward and come forward broken. Broken at heart, remembering again your need for Christ. Humbled by your need for Christ and relationship with him. And open to whatever he's convicted your heart of. And confession and restoration. Open to maybe how he's convicted your heart and how you need to respond to a brother. In fact, it says in the scriptures 
That if you're taking your gift to the altar and you recognize that you're not reconciled with your brother, leave your gift. Go be reconciled. Then bring it. Okay? Maybe that needs to be you today. All right? If you're here today and you're not a baptized believer, the invitation is not to come and break off bread and to dip it into the juice. The invitation, instead of taking this, is to take Christ. He has made himself available to you. Again, all you have to do is say, you know what? This crown doesn't belong on my head. I take it off. Jesus, I put it on yours. You can have my life. And he'll take it and be with you now and forever. There'll be pastors and others in the back to pray with anyone who has any need. If you want to know Jesus, come, let's talk about it, and let's pray for him to come and take over. If you already know Jesus and you got some drama going on in your life, and I know some of y'all do, okay? I'm your pastor. Come back there and let us pray with you, okay? If you're in conflict with someone, you need to come together and need mediation. Come on, let's, let's start it by praying. If you need healing in your life with something that's just going wrong, like we're a church that obeys God's word, to pray over you and ask for God to heal if he is willing. Come on back. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you this morning. Father, thank you so much for the book of Genesis. I know it's changed my life in so many ways. Lord, I have found that at the heart of preaching is not talking but it's listening. It's listening to what you want me to say to your people from your word. So thank you for speaking, Lord. And I pray today over your people that they too would take a posture of listening. They would hear your spirit speaking to them this morning and your spirit would speak. It would break through walls and barriers that we have placed up, placed up of, of distrust toward you. Though you have proven beyond a shadow of a doubt how much you love us and how forever and ever you are committed to keeping us your own through the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, I don't know all the needs. I don't know all that's going on. But Lord, may you work in this room, in this space, in this climactic moment of every Sunday gathering where people don't just listen, but then they respond. They respond not to me, but to you. And you come and bring healing. You minister. You do the work that you did when, Jesus, you walked this planet. And Lord, for those who are here today and they have realized there is a weight upon them that is too crushing to bear because it is the weight of your crown, that they would take that crown off them. Say, this doesn't belong to me. I don't want it anymore. Place it on the head of Jesus and say, you are Lord. Let, let this place of my life be your place forever. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name.